We were in a series, we were in a series called How to Read the Bible. We were in Hebrews 1 through 3, and we spent about five weeks looking at uh, how we should be, what does it mean to be good Bible readers. And we did that really good. And um, I hope you learned a lot. I learned a lot. It was awesome. We have completed that journey for now. And it is our custom in between other blocks, in between the blocks of sermon series, teaching. We don't just go from one thing to another. We spend time in between each thing and we go to the Psalms. I pick up where we left off and we hang out in the Psalms for a while. So what that means is today our text is Psalm 20. And we're going to stay in the Psalms at least through Easter. Um, so 20, 21, 22. And then we're going to go, because um, I've thought about what to do next. Uh, the thing that has just kept coming to my mind over and over again is teach Jesus, teach Jesus. Now, I know that just like we learned, Jesus is in the whole Bible. Um, but there's something special about the Gospels. So pretty soon what we're going to do in a few weeks, we're going to start a long journey through one of the Gospels. It's either going to be the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. We haven't decided yet. I kind of have an idea of what we want to do, um, but we'll let you know when we figure it out. Until then, so I just want to give you that update. Until then, Psalm 20. Okay? Um, would you stand for the reading of God's word? May the Lord answer, oh, sorry, Psalm 20, for the director of music of Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all of your requests. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees. They're brought to their knees and fall. But we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. When I was in high school, some buddies and I went to go, went to a music festival that was taking place at a park in Memphis because some of our favorite bands were playing. We went to go see one of our uh, favorite bands and uh, 
the uh, one of the, the it's one of those bands with multiple singers and songwriters in the band, kind of a super group. Um, and I remember watching my my favorite songwriter in the band. He uh, was about to play this song, and he stopped, and he said something that caught my attention. He said something along the lines of to this outdoor music festival crowd. He said, he said, you know, it's funny how when you write songs, sometimes when you write songs, you write them to mean one thing, and then over time, the meaning of the song changes. Uh, and he goes, so now I'm going to play for you a song that doesn't really mean what it meant when I wrote it. And of course, it's a music festival, so people are like, yeah, I don't know, he but that struck me, and then they played the song. It was interesting because it was a song about, uh, I think it was like a breakup song or something. So I thought, who did he break up with? And who did he break up with this time? <laughs> but that idea struck me because at the time, I was in high school, and I was just learning how to write songs myself. Songwriting has been a lifelong passion and a hobby of mine. Still learning how to write songs. But that idea of a song... Uh, the, the meaning changing over time struck me. I didn't quite get how could it be that a songwriter could sit down and canonize meaning in this piece of art to where the song becomes this expression and embodiment of something the songwriter thought and felt and then leave it and then come back years later or whenever and the meaning had changed. That fascinated me. It's true. Songs are living things. A lot of art is like that. You look at a painting or a poem or a song, you hear it one time in your life and it means something to you. You come back and it means something else later. That happens to us as readers, hearers, people who look at art, but for that to happen to the art itself really captured my imagination. I tell you that story because Psalm 20 is the psalm that should lead us to ask the kinds of questions about meaning that I just described. When Psalm 20 was written, it clearly meant one thing. And when we look back and we read it today, it seems to be for something else. And it should cause us to ask questions about the nature of meaning in the text, and it should cause us to wrestle with what's going on. It seems like the meaning of the psalm today is bigger than the original circumstances under which it was written. That's what I want to show you here in this text. Now, we just did a whole series on how to read the Bible. And since we've already started those conversations, and since maybe some of you might be getting worried that I might be able to tell you that you can't trust your Bibles because you never know what it means, it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I want to say this on the front end. When it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the Bible, it's inspired by God. And that means that ultimately, its meaning doesn't change. 
God doesn't change. This is his word. So ultimately, the meaning of Scripture doesn't change. The meaning of Scripture isn't ultimately located in the ears, in the imagination, in the experience of the reader. No, it's ultimately located in God. But, as Psalm 20 demonstrates, and like I want to show you, sometimes God gives meaning to a text in the Bible at its inception, at its writing, that is multi-layered and multi-dimensional and multifaceted. So that over time, as the world changes, we go back to this never-changing message of Scripture, and we see that what it has to say to each generation, even though it comes from one unchanging, unified message, it seems a little different. The Bible, the Word of God written, is a well deep enough to accommodate generations and generations of a changing world. The meaning of the text is something we're always growing into. And I want to show you that in Psalm 20. But I don't just want this to be a lecture about meaning in the text. At each perspective, I want to show you three different perspectives of Psalm 20, three readings of Psalm 20, three layers of meaning. Now, each one, I think you'll see that God, as he has something to say in three different generations of readers, he has something to say to us from each of those. So that's what I want to leave you with. Okay? So that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. Let's get started. Okay. Uh, perspective number one on Psalm 20, the first layer of meaning. We can call this a historical reading of the text. Does that sound familiar? We want to read the Bible historically. And so this is a historical reading of Psalm 20. We could, it could be titled, God Saves the King, a Liturgy for the Eve of Battle. That's what Psalm 20 is about. What is Psalm 20? Psalm 20 was written to be a liturgy, like what we do here, a call and response uh, event for the eve of battle for the people of God. Let's look at it together. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David. David wrote it. Who was David? David was the warrior king of Israel. He was the one who defeated Israel's enemies, unified the tribes. Uh, he was like this worship-leading warrior king. He was this type of Messiah, right? King David. Talked a lot about David in the Psalms. For the director of music, what does that mean? Well, that means he wrote it to be a public song. Uh, all of 150 psalms are good for singing. But at least 55 of them bear this moniker for the director of music, which means that we know that they were specifically designed to be read and sung, uh, specifically sung director of music publicly. So King David, the warrior king, wrote this for public use. Okay? And it starts off. It, well, let me go back. It's divided into two major sections, and it's a call and response. There's the call, and this is the word of the people. And then there is the response, the word of the liturgist or the king or maybe a Levite. Like in our worship guide, how we have 
you know, whoever the leader reads the regular print and everybody reads the bold print together, this psalm is like that. Verses, let's see, one through five is the word of the people. This is the congregation. The congregation stands there and says, all together, the people of God, they're gathered. And then you have a liturgist. Maybe it's the king himself. Maybe it's a prophet or some kind of priest. His word is verses 6 through 8. And then verse 9 is everybody together. So that's what's going on here. Now, where is this supposed to be? Well, the actual text of the psalm gives us clues. What we see in the text is there's this thing about uh, the people say, uh, when you are in distress, speaking to the king, the old King James Bible translation says, in the day of trouble, and actually that might be a more literal rendering of the Hebrew. So on the day when the conflict happens, um, maybe a day of battle, Talks about God sending help to the king from the sanctuary. So wherever this day of trouble happens, it's far away. Maybe on some kind of military campaign. It talks about the king's plans that would be consistent with some kind of military campaign. Uh, it talks about victory, about banners flying, chariots and horses. Uh, this is a battle that's about to take place. So here's the scene. Before the king rides off into battle, the people of God gather together for a worship service, maybe like a pep rally before a high school football game, but much more serious. And they do this liturgy. Would you listen to it with me like that? Okay, listen. Here's the people, the people all together. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of God protect you. Can you hear the rumble of the crowd? May he send you help from the sanctuary. Grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up banners in the name of our God. Hear the roar and the cheering. The people wishing the king and his well as he's about to go to battle and things kind of quiet down and then the king the king's representative waits for the crowd to calm down and he says oh this I know okay everybody this I know the Lord gives victory to his anointed he answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand Hear the crowd. You hear people nodding. And then here comes the here comes the the pep. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. People are starting to cheer. They, the enemy, are brought to their knees and they fall, but we rise up and we stand firm. And then everybody shouts, Lord, give victory to the king. Or as it says in the old King James, maybe somebody can double check this, I don't have it in front of me. I'm pretty sure it says, God save the king. Answer us when we call. 
It's beautiful. It's like a it's like a trauma. You, you see the call and response liturgy here? It's awesome. It's almost like something out of a movie. And it would be a movie for us because in our culture, and our society, we really don't have anything like this. In fact, it's kind of sad that the closest thing I've ever experienced to this is a high school pep rally for a football game where the people are calling and then you have the, the leader, the quarterback or whatever, says, okay, 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 everybody, we will have a picture, you know, that kind of thing. And everybody goes crazy. That's what's going on here. When David wrote this, he wrote this for an event. Many Bible scholars think that this was written for a military campaign that you could read about in 2 Samuel chapter 10, when David took his mighty men out to defeat the Ammonites. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure why they think it was that campaign, but I read about it in two different commentaries, so at least two people think that's the case. But it is fascinating. It kind of helps us to locate this in history. Uh, but this is not just a historical study. I mean, maybe this happened in history, that's cool, but why should that even matter to us? Well, even looking at this historically, something that happened with the Davidic kingdom, those people in that time of place back then, we see resonant themes that are present throughout the whole of Scripture and that are activated here in the text. We see a succession of themes throughout the liturgy, themes about covenant, God's covenant of grace with his people. Remember, God made promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would preserve their descendants, that he would be their God. He would give them a land. They would be his people. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the God of Jacob protect you. That covenantal theme. There's a theme about God's presence. Part of God's covenant was that he would live with the people, journey with the people. He had them put the tabernacle in their midst as they traveled through the wilderness. He lived with them on, and put the, put the temple in their midst on Mount Zion. And that's where God resided. That's where his spirit was. May he send you help from the sanctuary, grant you support from Zion, remember your sacrifices and offerings. So we see things of God's presence and worship, God's care for his people. We see things about God having not just a, a legal or formal or national relationship with the people, but, but wanting to have a personal relationship relationship with the people. Kind of like what, what Solomon reflected on in, in his great poem, The Song of Songs, where he depicts God and his people like two uh, people in love in a romantic relationship. May he give you the desires of your heart. And we see this sense of joy and belonging and even a sense of nationalism here for the people of God. May we shout for joy over your victory, talking to the king. And may we lift up our banners in the name of our God.
We know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. We look back at the Davidic monarch. Part of why David was so significant in the story of the Bible is that everything that God had promised to do for the nation, for the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the king symbolized that. The life of the people was symbolized and embodied in the life of the king. Now, in our culture, this is something that doesn't really fit. This is why we're obsessed with shows like The Crown, because it's so fascinating for us to watch. But in other cultures, like as depicted on the show The Crown, many other cultures have this sort of um, thing going on where there is very much a sense that the life of the nation, our corporate identity, is embodied and located in the life of the monarch. So what we see the people here saying is that if the king has success in battle, if God shows favor to the king, if God saves the king, God saves us. So here we have this liturgy, teaching the people to passionately place their trust in God's love for the king. Because if God saves the king, he saves us. Now, that's the historical meaning of this song. It's beautiful. We can glean some principles and some themes that we can kind of relate to from that. But really, it's not very useful for us, other than just learning about the way things were back then. So as Bible readers, if all of the Bible is useful for our Growth in the Lord, training and righteousness. Is there another layer of meaning here that we can grab onto? Well, yeah. So we just read it historically. Let's read it again, Christologically. Here's the second layer of meaning. The second perspective, the Christological perspective. We could call this, this psalm is now called, God Saved Jesus. A reflection on Christ's passion. Now, David, apart from the types and shadows, apart from the prophetic working of the Holy Spirit in him as he wrote these psalms, didn't know Jesus like we know Jesus. We would have said, David, you wrote this psalm about Jesus. He would have said, who's that? I don't know Jesus. But the Holy Spirit knows Jesus. Holy Spirit knew the Son would be coming. And as we see in so many Psalms, the Holy Spirit worked in David as he wrote this to write a song in advance about David's coming greatest son. So here on this side of Christ coming, we can read back and we can read Christ into the text. We can read him there because he belongs there, even though when David wrote it, he might not, probably had no idea. So let's do it. Let me show you. A reflection on Christ's passion. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And may he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. 
Here, what we can see is the people of God blessing the king, wishing the best for the king, but the king is the Christ who would come and who would go to battle for them, not on some Ammonite battlefield or whatever, but on the battlefield of Calvary, fighting the battle against sin and death at the cross. Which gives new meaning to, may God remember all of your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desires of your heart and make your plan succeed. And may we, God's people, Christ's people, shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. This becomes very appropriate as we approach Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week, thinking about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, ultimately to fight the battle against sin and death of the cross, and the people waving uh, palm branches like banners, welcoming him, Hosanna in the highest, welcoming him as the king. That's what this looks like. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. Anointed. Do you guys know that Christ, not Jesus' last name, it's a word that means anointed. May the Lord give victory to his Christ. He answers from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Think about in Isaiah 53 when it describes the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, by whose stripes we are healed. It describes him as the arm of the Lord. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Sounds like the Romans. It sounds like empire. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Jesus was the true heir to David's throne. Everything that David symbolized, Jesus fulfilled. David was the type. Jesus is the anti-type. And what we see in this psalm is this beautiful prophetic reflection in advance on Jesus coming to be the new David, to fight the ultimate battle for the people of God. What we see is the, the sort of this uh, prayer, this longing of the people of God, calling out that God's purposes for them in Christ would be fulfilled. And it's beautiful. Now, when Christ was in distress, in his day of trouble, did he get help from the sanctuary? Tough question. When he hung there on the cross, did he not cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he not sweat drops of blood and said, Lord, please take this away from me? Yeah. But I believe that Jesus did hear his, I, mean, I believe that God did hear his cries. I don't think that the Father abandoned Jesus, abandoned the Son on the cross. No. Not at all. Because when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and he breathes his last and he dies. Something happened. The curtain that hung, where? In the sanctuary. That separated the people from God's presence. In the place where sacrifices and burnt offerings were made and remembered. The curtain was torn top to bottom. And the partition between God and mankind was taken away. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he got an answer. He received his help from the sanctuary. When forgiveness begins to take place, when the presence of God begins to be no longer separated from mankind. Signaling victory for the Lord's anointing. And the Father did give Jesus, the King, the desire of his heart. He did answer his requests. Because by Jesus' blood spilled on the battlefield, Forgiveness and redemption and liberation of people like you and me was purchased. So the people who once shouted, crucify him, can now shout, we lift up our banners in the name of the Lord our God. Or reflecting back again on Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love. The death of Christ on the imperial cross showed us that there is no hope for life and for flourishing and for being filled with God and whatever it is you're ultimately after. There's no hope in chariots and horses, in empire, in the powers and structures of worldliness. Getting rich getting everything you've ever dreamed of, money, sex, and power, slaves, climbing some kind of ladder, none of those things. Bootstraps, religion, being a good person on your own power, all that stuff. There is no hope in any of that. You have to trust in the name of your Lord God the Lord and God of the King, Jesus. And that's what Psalm 20 is about. It's a beautiful song about God saving the King, Jesus. So here we have two different perspectives on Psalm 20 with two seemingly completely different sets of meaning. But one ultimate meaning. The fact that God saves his people through saving the king. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to just take this and file it away in our biblical theology drawer? Or our uh, biblical history drawer? Whichever one of these layers of meaning you like the best. No. 
We are supposed to take this to heart. This song is supposed to become our song, and we're supposed to live this. Now, what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we're supposed to cling to the first way of reading it, and we're supposed to go out, and we're supposed to go slay the enemies of the people of God in his name? No. How do we know that? Because it goes against the teachings of Jesus. Does it mean that we here in the United States need to scrap democracy and need to have some kind of monarch? No. That's ridiculous. What does it mean? Remember when we talked about the difference between reading our Bibles like this and reading our Bibles like this with our eyes focused on Jesus prayerfully and openly? That's when we need to start applying these things. What it means is this. We go back to this text. Now we've seen it historically. We've seen it Christologically. Now we can approach it again through a third lens and uncover this third layer of meaning. We've read it historically. We've read it Christologically. Now we read it now redemptively. We start to read it as our story as a text for us. And we see meaning here that wasn't for then, meaning for now. Why? Because it's living and it's active. And the Spirit has inspired it and inhabits it. And he lives in our hearts and he's doing something. So how do we read this text for now, for us, today? Non-monarchy people. Non-going out to fight actual, or even culture wars to try to win the kingdom of our own power. How do we do it? Well, the key is this. Colossians 3, 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes to believers and he tells them this. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 2 talks about being baptized into Christ's death. Romans 6 it talks about being buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ in newness of life. Throughout the New Testament, we see that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to find our identity in him. To be unified with him by faith. And when we take that seriously, we begin to see that what's true of Jesus is true of us, those of us who trust him. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Jesus is the firstborn son of many sons and daughters. His inheritance is our inheritance. His father is our father. His teaching is our belief system. So, we go back and we read Psalm 20 once again, this battle song. But if we read it through the lens of what's true about Jesus is true about us, then this thing that was once about war is now about blessing and peace. Because Christ has fulfilled this. 
He has gone to battle. He has won. And so now his victory is your victory. His suffering is your suffering. His resurrection is your resurrection. So this liturgical call and response, now drop the call and response. This becomes a blessing for the people of God. And every word of this becomes true about you if you are in Christ. So let's do it. Close. People of God, those of you who believe in Jesus, would you raise your hands and receive the Lord's blessing? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all of your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. And may the Lord grant all of your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we... Trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and they fall, but we rise up and we stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. In Jesus' name, amen.